Good afternoon. My name is Lois Enel, director of the Eastlake Community Library and your storyteller for Thrilling Tales. For millions of fans everywhere, The Twilight Zone has remained unsurpassed as a showcase for the very best in suspense and fantasy. For five seasons, this series kept viewers on the edge of their seats with its powerful combination of strong storylines and direction, all overseen by its creator and inimitable master of ceremonies, Rod Serling. Today's story, The Changing of the Guard, was aired on June 1st, 1962, and starred Donald Pleasance as Professor Fowler. The teleplay was by Rod Serling, and the story adaptation was written by his wife, Anne. It is a beautiful holiday story of an elderly professor who was forced to retire the day before Christmas vacation, feeling he has accomplished nothing in his lifetime as an educator. And now, the changing of the guard. There was nothing particularly unique about the Rock Springs School for Boys, nothing to differentiate it from any other New England boys' school. Ivy clung to the brick walls, broken only where dusty, diamond-paned windows peered through. Names and thoughts of bygone times were carved deep into the wooden desks, and a musty smell seemed to cling to the long corridors, even on sunny days. The halls echoed with the same laughter, the same anger, the same disappointments one might find in any other school. No, there was nothing really distinctive about the Rock Spring School. Nothing except Professor Ellis Fowler. Professor Fowler was 77, with a great gray mop of hair and a gray beard that moved up and down as he spoke. He had a kindly, intelligent face with sparkling blue eyes that still questioned and glasses that constantly slipped down his nose, only to be fruitlessly pushed back up. He was thin and angular, resembling a rather deflated Santa Claus. On this last day of the term, his students sat before him in various postures of boredom. Professor Fowler glanced at the book in his hand, then peered toward them owlishly. You'll remember that we've talked of the work of Alfred Edward Hausman, born what year, Mr. Graham? Graham, a 16-year-old linebacker whose body had grown without him, blinked and suddenly came to attention. What, what, what year, sir? There was a thin trickle of laughter. Graham shifted in his seat and fingered his varsity letter. Ah, uh, sometime this century, I think. Professor Fowler smiled and nodded. Close, Mr. Graham, closer than usual. Sometime this century, scratching his beard, he turned to the class. Mr. Graham's career is laid out for him, I believe. He will be a second assistant to the information booth at Kennedy Airport. The class sat up, anticipating a bit of fun, as the professor peered at Graham over his glasses. The date of A.E. Hausman's birth, Mr. Graham, and for the benefit of the rest of the class, was 1859. His death occurred, what year, Mr. Butler? A runty little student who had the kind of head that looked as if it would spend the rest of its life wearing a beanie jumped to his feet. Sir, around 1900. Professor Fowler straightened his glasses and scratched his beard again. Upon my word, young Mr. Butler, you and Mr. Graham are kindred spirits. Houseman died in 1936. Now, with your and Mr. Graham's permission, this may be somewhat less moving than what a T-formation quarterback tells his team in the huddle, but I hope you'll bear with me for a moment. All of you will recall, no doubt, a Shropshire lad, a little of which I will now read to you. When I was one and twenty, a 
I've heard a wise man say, give crowns and pounds and guineas, but not your heart away. He continued to recite, but his eyes left the book, moved past the heads of the students, and fastened on some far distant corner of the universe. Give pearls away and rubies, but keep your fancy free. But I was one and twenty, no use to talk to me. Slowly he lowered the book. When I was one and twenty, I heard him say again, the heart was out of the bosom, was never given in vain. Tis paid with sighs plenty and sold for endless room. And I am two and twenty, and oh, tis true, tis true. Professor Fowler was suddenly aware of the boy staring at him and closed the book. He took off his glasses and smiled from face to face. It is quite an odd phenomenon, really, how you react to that poem, much as your father's did. I've been reading it for 51 years to various classes, and not one has yet got its true meaning. Said meaning is simply, give sparingly of your youth. Embrace it for the precious thing it is. It's the most fleeting chapter in the book of your lives. He leaned over his desk and peered at the students. You will, I am sure, at some future moment of your lives, understand precisely what I'm getting at. Then, smiling again, he said, Now, gentlemen, this being the last day of the, the semester, and this being just three days before the Christmas holidays, I thought it might behoove me to show at least a minute degree of compassion and let you out early. I might add here that while your final exam papers are not ready to be returned to you, you have all amazingly enough passed. My delight is surpassed only by my sense of shock. It is rare, young men, that in some 51 years of teaching I have ever encountered such a class of dunderheads. His eyes twinkled, but nice dunderheads, and potentially fine young men who will make their marks and leave their marks. God bless you all, and a Merry Christmas. Professor Fowler made his way down the aisle, shaking an occasional hand as the students filed out, their voices rising, a spirit of the holiday season filling the halls. Locker doors slammed, books and papers were stashed away with whoops of joy. The boys were going home. Walking through the crowded hall, Professor Fowler was about to pass the headmaster's office when the door opened and a voice called out. The headmaster was a tweedy young man, still rather new to the job. He pointed an over-large briar pipe at the professor. I say, Fowler, could you step in here for a moment? Why, of course. The headmaster walked over to his desk, lighting his pipe. Sit down, Fowler, be comfortable. Professor Fowler settled himself in an overstuffed chair. Reaching into his pocket, he took out his pocket watch and peered at it. Am I keeping you? The headmaster said. Oh, no, no, no. There's going to be a broadcast of the Messiah at five o'clock, but I have plenty of time. It's a lovely thing. Very you-like. I agree, I agree, said the young man, arranging the papers on his desk. This won't take long. Fowler sat quietly, expectantly. The headmaster sucked on his pipe, made a tidy pile of the paper, and finally looked up. You he cleared his throat. You did not respond to the letter that the trustees sent you last week. The professor pushed his glasses further back on his nose. Letter? I'm terribly sorry. It suddenly occurs to me that I haven't opened my mail for the last few weeks. You know, final exams, grading, preparation for the holiday, that sort of thing. He smiled. Anyway, I'm rather certain I know the contents of that letter. The headmaster looked away. And your reactions, professor? Fowler took off his glasses and went through the ritual of checking and cleaning them. Well, I'll naturally go along. 
the headmaster beamed. I think that's very perspicuous of you, Professor. Then I'll tell the professor that you have received the communication and have agreed to it. Now, as to your replacement, Fowler was no longer listening. I told my housekeeper not a week ago, he broke in, that I should very likely teach in this place until I'm a hundred years old. Two years ago, I actually taught the grandson of one of my earlier students. I venture to say that I'll live to teach a great-grandson one of these days, he smiled. It was the Reynolds boy. You know him. His father was Damon Reynolds and his grandfather, regular rascal of a boy who persisted in calling me Weird Beard. Fowler chuckled and wiped his glasses. Weird beard. He didn't know I knew that's what he was calling me. Oh, a regular rascal of a boy. Went into the stock market, made himself a fortune. Came back for his 20th reunion, shook my hand and said, Professor Fowler, please forgive me for calling you weird beard. Fowler shook his head and smiled. The headmaster coughed. <coughs> Professor, you, you'll forgive me, sir, but I think you had best read the communications that the trustee sent. Fowler nodded. Oh, indeed I will. Well, it's really an odd formality, this contract signing year after year. You can tell them for me, Headmaster, that old Fowler won't depart the ship. Oh, no, indeed. He'll stand at the wheel through fair weather and foul, and he'll watch the crews come aboard and then depart, come aboard and then depart, and he'll see that the ship will stay on course. Professor Fowler, please hear me out, sir. The headmaster rose and walked to a window, where he stared out at the snow-filled day. When he spoke again, his voice was quiet, and not without pity. The communication that the trustees sent you was not a contract. He turned slowly from the window. As a matter of fact, it was a notice of termination. You've been on the faculty here for over 50 years. You've passed the normal retirement age several years ago. We decided at our winter meeting that perhaps a younger man, Fowler, he saw, had risen to his feet. If you could have been at the meeting, sir, you would have been very proud of the things said about you and your work. A teacher of incalculable value to all of us. But, he stood with his head down as if reluctant to look at the old man. Professor Fowler's voice was almost a whisper. Mr. Headmaster, am I to understand that my contract is not to be renewed? I'm discharged? The other began pacing the room. Discharged? Please don't call it that. Retirement, end, and half salary for the rest of your life. Fowler said very softly, for the rest of my life? Suddenly, he looked very old. He walked to the door and paused, his head back to the headmaster. Well, it, it certainly proves one thing. Upon my word, it does. A man should read his mail. He most certainly should read his mail. Outside in the corridor, he came across two of his boys. Merry Christmas, Professor. Have a happy holiday, sir. Fowler studied their faces. Mr. Holiday and Mr. McTavish, his voice shook. I wish you a safe and happy journey and a happy reunion with your families. And I trust you will not eat too much turkey and too much too much stuffing. I, I, I've known it to happen Christmas after Christmas. You young rascals go home and eat yourselves into insens insensibility boys looked at one another as tears ran down the old man's face. With trembling fingers, he touched each boy's face. You're both fine men. Have a Merry Christmas, both of you. Have a... His voice broke. He turned away, hearing the boys' voices behind him. What's the matter with the old man? He was crying. Did you see that? He was crying. 
Fowler walked slowly down the corridor, running his hand along the wall, feeling the carved molding that had been worn smooth through the years. Pausing, he stopped and looked around, taking in the sights and sounds of this building that he had virtually lived in for half a century. Finally, pushing open the heavy oak door, he walked outside and started home, oblivious to the bitter chill. He stopped once behind him to gaze at the building he had cherished for so many years. In the twilight, it was almost hidden by the falling snow. With difficulty, he climbed the steps to his house and stamped the snow off his feet, more from habit than from a conscious concern. On the hall table stood a little Christmas tree laden with ornaments and growing more top-heavy each year. Each ornament had a special meaning because all were gifts from his boys. After the Christmas season was over, each treasure would be wrapped and with great ceremony stored on a high shelf. But Professor Fowler wasn't looking at the tree tonight. He was looking at the letters lying beside it. Still in his hat and coat, he fumbled through them, the door behind him still open to the winter chill. From the dark recesses of the house, Mrs. Landers, the professor's housekeeper, materialized. After more than 20 years of living with him and caring for him, she had grown very fond of the old man and had grown used to his absent-mindedness. Closing the door, she straightened out a lock of hair that had been blown loose by a gust of wind. I didn't hear you come in, she said. It's certainly snowing and blowing to beat the band, isn't it? Fowler had finally found the letter he'd been searching for. I guess it is, he said his thoughts elsewhere. I hadn't noticed. Mrs. Landers started the old man's face, his stooped shoulders and ashen color. Is anything wrong, Professor? Fowler shook his head. He still held the letter. I guess that would depend on the point of view. If you're a trustee of this institution, anxious to inject new blood into the faculty, I'm sure you'd think there was nothing wrong at all. He paused. But if you're an old man who has spent the better part of his life inside those halls, those classrooms, then you might be forgiven a degree of consternation. Suddenly he chuckled. As a matter of fact, everything is not all right. Everything happens to be very wrong. Mrs. Landers pointed to the letter in his hand. What is it, Professor? What's happened? Fowler read aloud. And since it is the policy of the school to ensure our students the most up-to-date educational concepts, we think it advisable that you consider this retirement to be a mutually beneficial thing. Please understand the spirit in which this request is made and understand further that your contributions to the Rock Springs School for Boys are a matter of record, as is our appreciation. Oh, my word, Professor. That means, he finished her thought, that means, Mrs. Landers, stripped of some of its sophistry, its subtlety, its backbreaking effort to break it gently, I'm canned. He shook his head and then brightened. Tell me, were any of the boys here today? She looked confused. Your boys, sir? The students, Mrs. Landers, they have this wonderful tradition. On the last afternoon of the winter term, they would gather outside and sing Christmas carols. I haven't done that in years, Professor, she said gently. Not since before the war, as I recall. Fowler nodded. Oh, oh, of course, I should have remembered. Removing his glasses, he stared absent-mindedly to clean them, then suddenly threw them on the table. Mrs. Landers, I've become a worshiper of tradition and a fervent follower of ritual. I know it now, and I can admit it. I guess that's why this whole thing has hit me so hard. Crossing the worn oriental rug, he sat down at his desk. I'm an antique, guarding antiques. I'm the curator of a museum that houses nothing but some very fragile memories. Mrs. Landers shook her head. She was close to tears. Professor, you're the finest man. You're absolutely the finest man. 
Fowler smiled. And you, Mrs. Landers, are the most loyal woman. Now, would you do me a favor? Would you brew me up some tea? Hendel's Messiah is on the radio in a few minutes, and I'd like to listen to it. Alone again, he sat back and carefully removed a key from his keychain. Unlocking the lower right-hand drawer of the desk, he rummaged through it and took out a revolver. He sat staring at it a while, then placed it inside his sweater and moved to the old rocking chair. Outside the window, the night sky was still filled with snow. Professor Fowler had finished the tea Mrs. Landers had brought him, and the empty cup sat on the table as he listened, eyes closed, to the Messiah. The music ended on a triumphant sweeping note just as the housekeeper entered the room. Almost on tiptoe, she walked around the chair and peered into the old man's face. He opened his eyes. Yes, Mrs. Landers? She straightened up, startled. I thought you were asleep, Professor. Would you care for some more tea? He shook his head, his mind a million miles away. Thank you, no. I'll have dinner ready in half an hour. Why don't you take a little nap? Fowler reached over and turned off the radio. I know I'm being very difficult, but could we put off dinner this evening? I haven't much of an appetite. Professor, you've got to eat something. I, I could keep it warm for you, perhaps after your nap. He studied her kindly, aging face and smiled, perhaps later. She watched him as he rose from the chair and crossed the room to the bookcase, where three shelves were devoted to the Rock Springs yearbooks. The wood that supported them sagged beneath their weight. Removing one of the older books and carrying it to the desk, he opened it carefully and thumbed through the pages, studying the pages, the faces and names. Timothy Arnold, Arnold never thought that one would pass, had an incorrigible habit of chewing bubblegum and popping it. Sounded like a howitzer. Upon my word, it sounded like a howitzer. William Hood, little Bill Hood, smallest boy ever to play varsity football here and had a penchant for shelling. He turned another page and a smile lit up his face. Artie Beechcroft. Now there was a lad. There was a staunch lad, full of heart, that one. He looked thoughtful. Was he the one? Yes, yes, I recall now. His father sent me a letter. He was killed on Iwo Jima. Freckle-faced little fellow, always grinning, never stopped grinning, most infectious grin. He'd walk into a classroom and you had to smile. He continued turning the pages and at last, with a sigh, closed the book. They come and go like ghosts. Faces, names, smiles, the funny things they did or sad things, pointed ones. I gave them nothing at all. I realize that now. Poetry that left their minds as soon as they left themselves. Age slogans that were already out of date when I taught them. Quotations that were so dear to me, but were meaningless to them. The professor shook his head. Mrs. Landers, I am a failure. I'm an old relic that walks from class to class, speaking by rote to unhearing ears, unwilling heads. I am an abject dismal failure. I moved no one. I left no imprint on anyone. Now, where do you suppose I got the idea that I was accomplishing anything? Mrs. Landers shook her head tearfully, but no words came out. Fowler smiled, understanding her silence. He walked to the door. I will take that nap now, and I hope I haven't inconvenienced you putting off dinner like this. He closed the door softly behind him. Mrs. Landers slipped the yearbook back in its place on the shelf and busied herself restoring order to his desk. Lovingly, she touched the pipe, the old pins, the notebooks. Some papers, she noticed, were sticking out of one of the drawers. Reaching down, she pulled the drawer open and suddenly froze, transfixed in horror by what she saw beneath the papers, an empty holster. 
She picked it up, holding it at arm's length, and after sharing it, in horror, put it carefully back in the drawer. Suddenly, panic-stricken, she screamed, Professor Fowler, and ran into the hall. The front door stood wide open. Hurriedly, she picked up the telephone and dialed the headmaster. Fowler walked slowly across the campus, his footsteps echoing in the silence, his breath coming in short, quick gasps in the cold night air. His overcoat was awry and misbuttoned, and he had forgotten his hat. He looked lost and forlorn. Halfway across the campus, he stopped in front of a large brown statue. Wiping the snow off the base, he read the legend carved there. Horace Mann, educator, 1796 to 1859. He knelt before it in the snow. I was just wondering if you had any self-doubt, he asked aloud and smiled and shook his head. I'm sure not. He brushed more snow off until he could see the quotation beneath man's name. Be ashamed to die until we have won some victory for humanity. Fowler looked downcast. I have won no victory, he said. No victory at all. He felt the weight of the gun in his coat pocket. Now I am ashamed to die. Slowly, he drew forth the revolver, snapped off the safety catch, and was about to raise it to his head when he was distracted by the sound of far-off bells, pealing a melodious and strangely urgent call. Puzzled, he peered into the distance. Class bells? That's odd. Why would they ring now? There's no special assembly. There's nothing of the sort. In the distance, the bells began to ring again. Slipping the gun back into his pocket, Fowler headed toward the school. The door to the main building stood curiously open. Inside, he looked into each empty classroom, then up toward the ceiling. The bells continued ringing, yet he was completely alone. He paused at the door to his classroom, then strode inside and moved up the aisle between the desks. In the middle of the room, he stopped again and listened. There was a new sound now, a strange echoing hollow sound of talk and laughter, at once distant and yet very near. At the front of the room, he stopped, bewildered, amazed. Before him, in each seat, a figure was gradually emerging. First, no more than a ghostly transparency, then the flesh and blood figure of a boy, until each seat was filled. A dozen boys eyed him expectantly. Professor Fowler unbuttoned his coat. His lips formed soundless questions. I I don't understand. Forgive me, boys, but I'm not at all sure. What I mean is, I don't recollect how. They smiled at him silently. At last, one rose. Artie Beechcroft, sir. Second form, class of 41. How have you been, Professor? Fowler's eyes widened. How's that? How's that again? You say you're Artie Beechcroft? Slowly he remembered. Of course you are. I'd recognize you anywhere. Walking over to the boy, he reached out and gripped the boy's hand, wiping away a tear with the other. I've missed you, Artie. Suddenly, he paused and shook his head. But, but, but what are you doing here? Forgive me, but you, you shouldn't be here. You were... The boy smiled. That's right, sir. I was killed in Iwo Jima. Reaching into his pocket, he withdrew a small leather case, opened it, and displayed what was inside. I wanted to show this to you, sir. It's the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was given to me posthumously. Very prideful thing, Mr. Beechcroft, said Fowler, staring into the boy's face. A very prideful thing. I am indeed proud of you. You were always a fine young man. A fine young man. Suddenly, he blinked and shook his head. But I, I don't understand. Professor, there was a boy from across the room. Fowler turned toward him. 
I'm Bartlett, third form, class of 28. I died in Roanoke, Virginia. I was doing research on x-ray treatment for cancer and was exposed to radioactivity. I contracted leukemia. I remember, Bartlett, said Fowler softly. I do remember. That was an incredibly brave thing you did, an incredibly brave thing. I kept remembering, Professor, something you'd said to me, a quote by a poet named Walter. Fowler nodded. Howard Arnold Walter, I remember. Bartlett's voice was strong as he recited. I would be true, for there are those who trust me. I would be pure, for there are those who care. I would be strong, for there are those for there is much to suffer. I would be brave, for there is much to dare. I never forgot that, Professor. It was something you left me. I never forgot. Fowler felt his lips begin to tremble. How, how very decent of you, Bartlett, to say that. From across the room, Marty Beechcroft added, That's why I brought the medal to show you, Professor Fowler, because it's partly yours. You taught me about courage. You taught me what it meant. What? What? Why, how incredible, the old man said softly. Why? His eyes scanned the room on a very small boy. Why? It's Weiss, isn't it? Dickie Weiss. You were the first one, Dick. The boy got to his feet. The first one to die, Professor. I was at Pearl Harbor on the Arizona. I was an ensign. I remember, Dick. You saved a dozen men. You got them out of the boiler room after they were trapped and lost your life doing it. The boy nodded. You were at my elbow that day, Professor. You may not have known it, but you were there. It was the piece you taught me by John Diamond. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Fowler's eyes were brighter in the silence that ensued. Once more the bell rung, but this time very softly. He walked up and down the aisles of boys as they each in turn rose. I'm Thompson, sir, second form, class of 39. I died on New Guinea, but you taught me courage. Hudson, sir, second form, class of, 70, of 22. You taught me about loyalty. Whiting, sir, fourth class, fourth form, class of 51. You taught me about honesty. Blinking back tears, Fowler surveyed the class and wiped his eyes. Absent-mindedly, he took off his glasses, peered through them, cleaned them, and put them back on. As they watched him, the boys smiled. They remembered this ritual fondly. None of them had ever forgotten it. For a moment, there was silence in the room. At last, it was Beechcroft who spoke. We have to go back now, Professor. We want to let you know that we were grateful, that we were forever grateful, that each of us has, in turn, carried with him something that you gave him. We wanted to thank you, Professor. One by one, the figures dimmed and disappeared. Once more, the bells began to ring. Fowler walked slowly up the aisle, looking at the desks, touching that one, pausing by another, remembering. Snow covered his coat by the time he arrived home. Mrs. Landers was on the telephone. She smiled with relief as he came in. Yes, headmaster, he's home now. He's all right. Yes, he's just fine. Thank you. She put the phone down. The two of them were beaming at one another when suddenly from just outside came the sound of a Christmas caroling. Going to the window, Fowler saw a group of boys knee-deep in snow and heard their voices lifted in the last refrain of the song. As they finished, one boy stepped forward. Merry Christmas, Professor. Merry Christmas to you. 
Fowler raised the window. And a Merry Christmas to you, young men. A very Merry Christmas indeed. And may I add how, how grateful I am to all of you. I've especially thought that Christmas caroling is a wonderful special tradition. Merry Christmas, boys, and God bless you. The boys waved as they moved off, gradually beginning another song. Fowler lowered the window and turned to his housekeeper. I've had a chance to think it over, Mrs. Landers, and I think I will retire. I do believe that I've taught all that I can teach, and I wouldn't want the returns to diminish. He turned once again and stared out the window. Taking off his glasses, he went through the familiar ritual of peering through them, cleaning them, and slipping them back on. From a distant tower, the sound of chimes, with the echoes of a carol beyond it. I do believe, I, I do believe I have made a mark, the old man smiled. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Mrs. Landers, I didn't win them, but I helped others to win them. I believe that now. So in that way, even in a small measure, they are victories I can share. Gazing once more out of the window, he nodded. I've had a very good life, Mrs. Landers, a rich and fruitful life. And as for this particular changing of the guard, I wouldn't have it any other way. Happy holidays, everyone.